This podcast is for general information only. It is not intended as a substitute for general health care services. If you have medical conditions, you need to see your doctor. Use of this information is at the user's own risk. Welcome to FitRx with Dr. Greg Dennis. Join me as we challenge the standard sick model of healthcare. This is your source for everything health, wellness, prevention, fitness, biohacking, and more. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FitRx. I'm your host, Dr. Greg Dennis. Uh, my guest today is Miss Sally Norton. She is an acclaimed nutrition educator who uh, has had her own own health issues, which I'll let her uh, discuss, and has really become uh, an expert in the field of oxalates and how they are harmful to our bodies. And she goes around lectures about this, educates people about this. Uh, and she has written a book uh, titled Toxic Superfoods, which um, we are going to to get into today. Um, it's basically how oxalate overload is making you sick and how to get better. Uh, and so, Miss Sally, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We're going to have fun. All right. Well, I guess first, I always like ask my guests just kind of how you got into this. I read a little bit about, um, you know, your background and how you had your your own health issues. So uh, briefly talk about that, if you will, and then how that led into something as specific as oxalates. Yeah, uh, it's not a place I would have guessed when I decided I wanted to be in nutrition to be part of the world of preventive well-being, you know, how to live to not get sick has been my professional question since 1977. <laughs> when I decided as a seventh grader that I would study nutrition, I would not expect to be landing on, oh, don't eat so much spinach people, <laughs> which is where I am now. And it's from a lifetime of attempting to eat well and do the best I could in every way I could for my health and not being healthy. And it was not easy to even accept that oxalate was a thing because I'm educated. I know stuff. <laughs> I read this paragraph this big and this one this big, like one little inch in two places in my textbooks that said, yeah, don't eat oxalate because it grabs your calcium and it it's in chocolate, spinach and tea and, you know, just don't have those with your dinner or something. You know, it just isn't that heavily covered other than the fact that we know that oxalate is the major kidney toxin that we're exposed to day in and day out, causes kidney distress and problems, and is the ingredient that makes up the standard kidney stone. And that most of that oxalate that becomes the kidney stone is coming from the foods that contain oxalate. But even that information doesn't seem to be enough to wake up my profession of public health nutrition to the fact that we should be aware of how much we're eating and that we're eating way past what we can eat. So I, you know, I didn't know. And it took a real struggle. And I had many different health problems over the years. And in the end, I was hoping to fix my sleep disorder that had made me completely disabled. I could no longer work. I had quit my faculty position at the local university because I just couldn't function. And I needed a hysterectomy of all things. And didn't recover from that well. So now my doctor sends me to the sleep lab and find, I find out, I didn't even know my brain was waking up 
29 times an hour. So this was, was like the, the thing this guy did. When you look great on paper and you look fine in person, he couldn't figure out what was wrong. He'd send you to the sleep doctor. And I did the research that says, you know, that's brain toxicity. Some kind of toxin is making your brain unable to settle down and sleep properly. And that the likely explanation is SIBO. Well, I had all the bloating and the, I had the clinical picture of SIBO. I didn't really have SIBO. I had the test, it was negative. I took the drug anyway. It didn't do any good. And it, I'm trying to fix that problem, but I was now getting some recognition that I was paying attention to the oxalates I was eating. For the last, the previous three years before I had this true mental breakthrough, I had learned about the Volver Pain Foundation teaching people now for 30 years that certain pelvic pain conditions, bladder problems, uh, vulvar pain and other genital pain can be oxalate related. And if you take oxalate on the diet, you can get symptom relief. And so I was now paying attention to that because I would occasionally have that problem of vulva pain, itching, burning. I had one little bout of it for a couple of days that just floored me. It was terrible. And my husband found them online. So I had spent the previous three years being much more aware of oxalate and food because they took the time to do the testing. My field in public health nutrition hasn't bothered to test and nephrologists and urologists don't seem to care about the tests and make that available for uh, those of us in the nutrition profession. So I had to learn what I didn't learn in school through a nonprofit organization, which wasn't medical at all. And that's because they took collections of money to have foods tested. So that's how much oxalate is just off the radar. But now it was on my radar and I was aware that I was eating oxalate crystals in the form of kiwi and some celery and a few other things. And as I started doing that routinely again, after having reduced oxalates and I started using those oxalate foods again, thinking, well, I don't have pelvic pain, so it doesn't matter. Well, my arthritis came back. I had had horrible arthritis in my 20s. It started when I was 12. It was still come and go here and there, but I was basically kind of sort of over it for no known reason. But now I was eating kiwi a couple times a day to fix my chronic constipation and supposed SIBO and leaky gut and gut problems that were supposedly causing my sleep disorder. And by adding in the kiwi, I re-added arthritis back to my life. Stiffness, tightness, my yoga classes were getting harder and harder to do because my range of motion was getting tighter and tighter. And then I, I had this insight that I needed to be doing this low oxalate thing, not just for vulvar pain, but for arthritis. Was not happy about that because I'm trying to fix the sleep problem. I need to do that. And I thought these were all separate problems. So with a chip on my shoulder and annoyance, I get more serious about paying attention to oxalates and getting the kiwi out of my diet. And within 10 days, I could tell I was sleeping better. I could now read with comprehension. I could now go out to the mailbox and look at my mail and understand what the mail was all about and be willing to read it. I, I didn't, I couldn't do that before. And all kinds of other things got better over the, the in the wake of this. All of a sudden, a long laundry list of health problems started clearing up. Through just kind of experimentation on your own, you realized you were able to kind of isolate that this was oxalates, correct? Well, um, it certainly seemed to be, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, and and so you, um, I'm assuming then just kind of took a deep dive 
for yourself personally. And then, yeah. uh, you know, that ended up, um, you, know, you end up writing this book, uh, you know, toxic superfoods about, uh, uh, oxalate specifically. And, and so I guess let's just go ahead and get into that. Um, the, the whole kind of first part of the book is, is how oxalates harm. And so I guess let's start there. Talk about why they're bad, how they're harmful, because, um, kind of like the, the, um, the title of your book, a, a lot of um, oxalates are in, quote, you know, very healthy foods. And so people think they're doing good by eating these healthy foods. But um, and, and so why why are they bad? What are they doing in the body that's that's harming us? We'll just start there. Right. So oxalates are the, a natural chemical that plants make and that's in a lot of foods we trust, as you said. And we don't have a way to metabolize them at all. So we can only handle them, we can try to avoid too much absorption, and then we can try to excrete them pr principally through the urine. We don't have any detox capacity. The liver doesn't detox oxalates. So oxalates come in several forms. That's why we say it in the plural. Usually there's oxalic acid, which is the parent compound. It's a tiny little molecule that has a negative charge, either one charge or two. It drops that second proton and can have two negative charges which makes it an excellent chelator of metals. It likes to connect with metals, especially calcium. In nature, much of oxalate shows up in the form of calcium oxalate. And of course, oxalic acid combined with iron, magnesium, you name it, like uh, pretty much the whole bench of minerals can become a mineral oxalate, which is a technically a salt. And when these little mineral oxalates form, they can start pairing up and then nucleate into a nanocrystal. So you get eight or 10 pairs of these in, in the right conditions and they start becoming crystals. Pretty easy to become crystals. Plants take advantage of that crystallization power. They make oxalic acid. Many first make vitamin C because vitamin C easily oxidizes into oxalate. And so it's easy for them to produce oxalic acid. And what they do is they set up this sort of scaffolding and build calcium oxalate crystals, lots of calcium in soil that's always available to them to build calcium oxalate crystals in certain shapes. And those shapes are always pointy and sticky and hard. They're very hard like quartz. They're so hard. They're like ground glass or so on. They're harder than your teeth. So in the plants we're eating, such as the kiwi, you get both the oxalic acid and you get the nanocrystals and you get these built calcium oxalate structures that the plants make that calcium oxalate material can literally degrade your teeth. It's called dental micro wear and wear down your teeth. It's There's one shape in particular the plants make, which is like a toothpick with arrows on both ends that are sharp. It's very minuscule shard of calcium oxalate. Think of it as like glass that can penetrate two cells deep. So that's very irritating to the gut, which is only one cell deep and can turn on inflammation that can become systemic inflammation if you're eating this irritant. But the oxalic acid easily, when it's dissolved in water, just floats between the cells through what we call paracellular transit into your bloodstream and has immediate effects in the vascular system, including the blood cells circulating there. Monocytes have been shown to be damaged within 40 minutes of the consumption of a spinach smoothie, so much so that they're now disabled in terms of their powers to protect you from infections. The liver has to deal with the oxalate very quickly because all the oxalic acid that you absorb from your food ends up straight in the liver. 
and can form these lipid crystals and get stuck there. But what it does in the liver primarily is use up glutathione because the liver cells have to protect themselves from the toxicity of the, of the pro-oxidant. I mean, it's very oxidative, can't be processed. In fact, the liver makes oxalate. So as the oxalic acid leaves the liver, it leaves with more, not less, because the liver adds to it. And the more stressed and inflamed the liver is, the more oxalate it makes. So when there's inflammation, the body makes more oxalate. So there's a lot of issues with like the surface and the digestive tract, but then you have metabolic issues for cells and tissues. Oxalate has lots of different ways of interfering with cell membranes, with mitochondrial function, with energy production, uh, and creates oxidative stress and can really cause some systemic acidity and lots of different ways of injuring both individual cells, tissue function, and overall body metabolism. So would you say that oxalates are bad for everyone, or there are just certain people who are more sensitive to them who are going to have, you know, physical symptoms from them, arthritis or whatever else? Well, with most diseases, you you don't get symptom onset necessarily early in the game. And they certainly don't necessarily with this, but if we knew to think about, oh, well, four hours after I ate a high oxalate meal, which might be big sweet potatoes with a spinach salad and a little chocolate for dessert, that would be four hours later would be bedtime. So if you have symptoms coming on at bedtime, that could be related to the meal, but nobody knows the connection of the symptoms and the food anyway, or when you're eating oxalate. So it's really hard to say when the symptoms came on. So that in itself, we don't even know the answer to how asymptomatic is this or not? Is it as asymptomatic as blood pressure or cancer or certain forms of heart disease where just all of a sudden you drop dead of a heart attack, had no idea. So we don't really, we don't have the science to say about tolerance in that kind of way, who's more tolerant than others, but it's clear that the, the lethal dose of oxalate can be as little as four grams of oxalate or as high as 15. And we are assuming that's a host difference, like the person's metabolism, the person's gut, whatever, but it's also the delivery and how diluted it is and lots of other factors. So it's a very complicated thing to say. Clearly we have different tolerances and we have very different ways of becoming sick with oxalate. So it's gonna show up very different in each person and when it shows up and where it shows up and how long the effects last is highly unique. But I would say just like, mercury, lead, arsenic, and so on, that no one is immune to oxalate as a toxin. You said it's going to be different for everybody, but if someone is eating a lot of uh, oxalates, and uh, what would you say in general is going to be their primary symptoms? Is there some more common symptoms that are linked to high oxalates? Right. Well, it, those of us in clinical practice like to think about body systems. And if you can break it down in body systems, we can think principally of four of them. One is the digestive tract. If you have any kind of digestive disorder, it could be reflux, it could be constipation, it could be diarrhea, it could be leaky gut, but gastritis, any itis things, you, that could be oxalate because gut problems pretty much in the end are, are going to be part of the story for a lot of people. Then you have the nervous system. Nerves are super sensitive to all toxins, but a toxin that chelates calcium and causes cell membranes to leak and cause calcium to rush into them and then leak out their potassium, 
that's deadly to nerves. So you can see a lot of neurological problems, which often are mood related, where people have irritability problems, they have uh, lost affect and a lot of apathy or even frank depression or panic attacks, a lot of negativity, that kind of thing. So, and that's very old in the literature. When they first were defining dietary oxalate as a disease, this was the 1840s, the early, late 1830s and early 1840s. And they always described the patient as having some kind of neuroses and personality change and negativity. So the, that's part of the nerve damage, but eye hand coordination issues, if you're dropping and bumping into things and so on, that could be a sign of neurotoxicity as can be pain symptoms and, and neuropathies and so on. So there's the nervous system. There's the uh, connective tissue system. There's all your joints and bones, there's rheumatism, all kinds of pain syndromes, whether it's like fibromyalgia, arthritis, tendonitis, bursitis, those itises that affect joints and muscles can be oxalate. And then there's your urinary tract because the urinary tract is designed to and to handle oxalate and has to handle a lot of it. A huge amount of what you excrete is coming out through the urinary tract. So you can end up with certain kinds of kidney problems, especially kidney stones, bladder problems where you're waking up at night to pee, you're peeing lots of times all day and night long, you're having bladder pain, you're having incontinence problems those can all be oxalate related. You mentioned early on, uh, you were having some sleep problems. Uh, is that is that something that could be affected by high oxalate is sleep? Yes, this is, a, this is exactly what happens with the nerves. The nerves, because the brain is a big bundle of nerves. When nerves are toxic, they're stuck in this kind of what we call hyperstimulation. And that makes it very hard for the brain to settle down and stay settled down. So sleep disorders are very common with the oxalate problem. And with my client set, what I see is two thirds to three quarters of us get quick benefits with our sleep. When we get off the oxalates, our sleep gets so much better. Our ability to meditate comes back. Our ability to be calm and settle down and be happy is fantastically restored. But some people continue to struggle with the sleep problem and because they're waking up at night to pee because they still have so much oxalate in their system and there's a, a kind of a long healing path but for sure someone with a chronic sleep problem and they can't explain why this would be important to look into hmm. uh so let's talk about um i guess how people get high oxalates so i'm sure you probably have a list in your book uh, but you've mentioned spinach and kale you mentioned a couple of things but uh, talk about some of the foods or some of the things we eat. You mentioned chocolate. I mean, what are some of the the higher oxalate foods out there that people are ingesting? Well, the most popular ones are probably nuts, meaning, meaning almonds, cashews, and peanuts, spinach, chard, and beet greens, and then potatoes, both uh, the Idaho potato that we turn into French fries, chips, and tater tots and the sweet potato are all high in oxalate. So those are really popular ones, normal ones we grow up on. I mean, who doesn't grow up on peanut butter and potatoes and then then there's the chocolate. Interestingly though, you, everyone seems to say the word spinach with the word kale right next to it as if they're the same and as if they're both equally high in oxalate and they're not. Kale has a tiny, tiny fraction. Even the highest kales have a tiny fraction of oxalate relative to spinach. So when we talk about the highest worst offenders, we're talking about foods that have 
at least like a whole day's worth of your tolerance level. So we're designed to handle 100 to 200 milligrams of oxalate a day and a big handful of almonds can get you there. A spinach salad would be four to 500 milligrams and a plop of cooked spinach could be seven to 1200, 700 to 1200 milligrams of oxalate. A chunk of Swiss chard is even worse. I used to live on Swiss chard every day. So yeah, and then the other thing is the bran and whole wheat and whole grains is loaded with oxalate. And when we can't handle that anymore and we get off the wheat, we go on to buckwheat, quinoa, taff, and gluten-free products that have seeds and nuts in them and arrowroot and cassava flour. And then there's the chia seeds. They're ridiculously high. Hemp is pretty high. Sesame seeds are high. There's a few fruits that are high, star fruit, pomegranate, kiwi, and blackberries. These are all like supposed to be so fantastic because <laughs> we're not paying attention. Uh, so you mentioned chocolate. Um, obviously, you know, regular chocolate, sweet chocolate is not good for you anyways. Uh, I eat a lot of the high uh, cacao, you know, 88, 90% cacao, which, um, you know, are supposedly have some health benefits. Um, I assume those are probably pretty high in the uh, oxalates. Yeah, the oxalate is in the cocoa fraction, which is what you're talking about when you say 88%. This is like the, yeah. the cocoa part that's the brown part versus the fatty part in the sugar and the milk that gets added to dilute it. And that's where the oxalate is. The, the, the fats don't have oxalate. Oxalate is a polar molecule because it's charged. So it doesn't hang out with, with the, um, the fatty tissue. It stays out in what we call the aqueous fraction. Yeah, so the darker your chocolate, the more concentrated the oxalate. And, and I don't know what, it, what happens with all the lead and the other contaminants that are in chocolate too. Yeah, so uh, you mentioned nuts potatoes, you know, most types of potatoes, including potato chips, you mentioned chocolate. Uh, those are, are probably the bigger ones. Some, some vegetables, spinach, um, any, anything else? Okra is high. Let's see. Let's get into like the jazzy ones. Uh, the uh, eggplants a little on the high side. If you concentrate certain tomato varieties into a tomato sauce, that can get to be high. Um, what else? It's, it's not that big a list, really. And most all of these foods are foods that are really human beings have just picked up recently as foods, certainly in the last 400 years, but many of them in the last 150 years. I mean, people did not eat peanuts until after the Civil War. We did not eat chocolate bars until 100 and something years ago. And we did not eat dark chocolate until about 30 years ago. People just didn't like it, but it's become this fad, this craze. So now we've all learned to like it. And people now think it's essential to live on. And yet human beings got along with it for 2 million years without it. So, you know, people have knee jerk emotional reactions. What my whole wheat and my potatoes and my chocolate, are you kidding? But let's get serious about, are we really eating foods we're meant to eat or not? I mean, they're brand new novel foods. How could we just say we can just start living on them without asking the question how safe that really is? Yeah. Okay. So. How would somebody know if they have high oxalates or they're eating too many? What what kind of testing is out there? Um, as I told you before we started recording, I had a gut test years ago that, um, if I remember right, showed some high oxalates. But that's not something that even me as a, a primary care physician who even focuses on wellness, it's not something that I'm checking regularly. So um, how can... Uh, and, and this is kind of a two-part question, 
the individual out there who's just, hey, I'm wondering if if I have uh, high oxalates, if I'm eating too many, how can they know that? And then me as a primary care physician, uh, what kind of testing is available, you know, for patients to be able to determine that? Well, just the, the first, we'll come back around and talk some more about testing in some detail, but it's really clear from my research and personal experience that we can trust supposed objective testing to tell us. You certainly can't eliminate the possibility that oxalates are already affecting your health now with testing. It takes over nine urine tests to even guesstimate the average oxalate excretion. The body's doing lots of management in the background, trying to give the kidney a break here and there and, and, and manage it in a way to keep the toxicity at bay as best it can. And you can't just do a spot urine test. Even a 24-hour urine test will actually flatten out some of that spiking that's going on when the body's struggling with oxalate. You'll get voids of oxalate, voids of urine, you know, maybe we pee eight times a day. You could have two or three of those voids that are off the charts high, but when you pull it together in a 24 hour collection, it looks normal or just a little bit over normal, a little bit of what we call hyperoxylaria there. So if you do get a hyperoxylaria test, you should take it seriously, but it's not done. Well, you could just ask your clients or ask yourself, do you ever see cloudy urine? That means your kidneys are able to put out enough oxalate that's crystallizing that the light is bouncing off those crystals and it looks a little bit milky. So if you see cloudy urine, that's that's a simple thing to ask about, or even we should probably have it on our basic um, symptoms list when we ask somebody's health history, do you see cloudy urine very often? Because that crystal urea is a major risk factor for kidney stones, and it turns out it's a risk factor for general oxalate poisoning. So um, the other tests, you know, they're just not that reliable. And it's cheaper to do this sort of evaluation of symptoms, risk factors that increase your absorption of oxalate and make it harder for you to excrete oxalate, and then your exposure to these foods. So I have this inventory available on my website for free. It's also in the book, Toxic Superfoods, where you can self-evaluate. Do you have leaky gut? And have you had a history of NSAIDs? Do you have trouble with fat digestion? All of those things will increase your absorption of oxalate. Are you on a low calcium diet? That'll increase your absorption of the oxalic acid. Do you have a family history of kidney stones? Have you had any kind of urinary tract issues? Have you ever seen blood in the urine? Those kinds of things are gonna say that you're not handling oxalate well from the kidney side and can't excrete it as well as some other people. And then you wanna look at your exposure. You don't need a high oxalate diet to be sick with oxalate if you have leaky gut, if you have fat malabsorption and you have a low calcium diet. But anybody who's eating too many of these super off the chart foods like spinach and chard, rhubarb is another one, then you're at risk. You're, you're eating a danger level of oxalate because you could be eating eight, 10, 15 times the amount you're designed to handle. We want people just to know that's past the human capacity. We really should rein it in to bring them down into something that science says we can handle. Uh, if if somebody wants to cut out oxalates, um, how long? So say they're they're eating a lot of that stuff you just suggested, and and you know they identify with a lot of the symptoms that you mentioned, and they say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut these things out. Uh, how long will it take? to maybe get those oxalates out and, and when would somebody notice a difference? Yeah. So we're talking now about this bioaccumulation, which we really haven't touched on much, but the, what happens when we eat past that sort of 100 and 200 every day, we're 
building up a load of oxalate in the tissues because it can crystallize out into tissues and start collecting in your thyroid gland, your bone marrow, your tendons, your bones, you name it. Even your kidneys can develop nephrocalcinosis. Most people die with a certain degree of nephrocalcinosis because we all eat so much oxalate. So this bioaccumulation problem um, it really affects the course of the reversal of the, of the you know, you're, you're creating a problem with your diet. Now you want to stop doing that. But that's a really tricky major metabolic shift because if you've been eating them as a routine food, then your body's been in this sequestration mode trying to protect your vascular system and your immune cells and your kidneys from excessive constant exposure. You're holding on to it. Now, when you lower this level that's coming into the bloodstream every day, the body's like, wow, finally some a break. And it starts to want to undo this toxic burden hopefully starting with the kidneys and the urinary tract there. But some people start feeling sick within a couple of weeks and you might feel great for three to 10 days because the, the acute business coming in after each meal is gone. And then the body gets in the mood to like finally be able to get rid of some of this backlog. And that backlog can sit around for decades. So you could have a problem of particulate nanoparticles, it's kind of like asbestosis, but it's set up in situ where along came the acid, it took the minerals from your tissues and bones and formed calcium oxalate crystals that are now hanging out in your brain and your meninges and your spinal bones and so on. And now you have to dig them out with immune activation and basically get surgery without anesthetic by your little immune cells trying to get rid of this stuff. So you might see an improvement in three days, like I really clearly was sleeping better in, you know, just over a week, it was obvious that I was feeling better. Uh, and finally, at this stage, I started to understand that going too low will encourage that too much. And that's the really hard thing to understand that if you go so low, you give your body so much permission to be enthusiastic about unloading the burden, that's toxic. You don't want to turn on that much inflammation and you don't want to liberate that much of a toxin into your bloodstream and your kidneys. You could literally create oxalate kidney stones from the oxalate that's already hanging around in your body from your former spinach salads. So that sounds a little complicated um, because <laughs> you're uh, you're talking about how oxalates are bad. And so if they're bad uh, and, and they're a toxin, we need to get rid of them. But if I'm, if I'm understanding you right, we don't want to get rid of them too quickly. Um, and, and so because all that stored oxalate in the body then can cause problems. And so how do we kind of balance that? If we just, if we stop eating these foods, sounds like we may get worse before we get better, but yet we want to get these toxins out. How do we kind of balance? Yeah, that? yeah, it's it's a crazy kind of you know evil carnival <laughs> carnival situation where you. The, but the good part about this is that what it means is you don't need to jump off a cliff and go from a high oxalate diet to a zero oxalate diet. That is not recommended. You want to evaluate what you're doing and see you know maybe you're stuck on eating buckwheat every morning and you're willing to change that to something else and just start with one thing at a time and kind of uh, slowly creep back from this dangerous level that you're doing in a way that doesn't necessarily trigger a really sharp reaction from the body. I like to think of this as um, leaving the baby's bedroom, the baby's just barely asleep and you're creeping out backwards and tiptoeing and trying to shut the door. 
carefully so they won't notice that you've left. So like cut back slowly. So that's great because that's normal. Human beings can't make dramatic changes in their diet overnight anyway. So you can be a little bit casual in the process. The difficulty is you have to stay attentive for a long time and really know, be aware of the oxalates and start learning them. So during the learning phase, you don't have to be perfect. You can just say, all right, no more smoothies for me. I'm done with the blender for a while. I'm done, you know, and just kind of do it in a way that you can do, but be willing to um, recognize that at some point you may feel pretty good and you start to see, yeah, I'm sleeping better. My mood's a little better. I'm meditating better. I don't have as much shoulder pain or I don't have that pain behind my shoulder blades as much anymore. I feel a little freer in yoga class. You're going to see something be better. And then some weird thing might show up that might be new or an old symptom coming back an old area. You may have injured your foot in a soccer game or something, and that could come back. You can get peeling skin and you can get grit coming out of the eyes, extra tartar on the teeth. There's, there are signs you can learn so you can observe the process and start to sense, oh, this might be the oxalates coming out of my tissues. And so we've, as a community of thousands of people who are doing this together, it's remarkable what can happen in the wake of changing the diet. So it's a marathon, not a sprint. Uh, don't go too quickly. But if you continue this type of lifestyle over time, the body will eventually get rid of a lot of these uh, toxins. Yeah. yeah I, I guess, which is the ultimate goal, correct? The ultimate goal. Yes. In, in a way where you don't leave behind an autoimmune condition from all this inflammation that the crystals are in, in encouraging. Yep. Okay. So uh, tell me if you will, because you know, a lot of the foods you mentioned are, are pretty common foods, especially you mentioned the nuts and the almonds and, uh, you know, those are a, a lot of things people eat on a, a lower carb diet that, um, we advocate. And, and so I'm anxious just to kind of hear about your day-to-day diet. I mean, go through, if you will, what a, what a typical breakfast, lunch, and dinner looks like for you. Well, my diet has, um, gradually, gotten a little narrow. And I blame the oxalate condition for this, the amount of gut damage and the end up with a lot of us end up with lots of food sensitivities. That's another uh, sign of oxalate problems is there's sort of a sensitivity generally, lots of sensitivities, even eye, light and sound sensitivity, but some, some bad reactions to food. But generally, I've been a big vegetable eater, loving big romaine salads made with a nice homemade salad dressing with lemon juice and mustard and a little garlic in it and so on, and throwing in some cheese in there. Cheese and dairy are really great for the oxalate problem because you need that calcium as the main binder that helps prevent you absorbing, absorbing oxalate while you're eating high oxalate foods unawarely. Now that you've cut way back on them, you need the calcium, not so much to prevent absorption, but now you need it as the binder that helps the colon excrete oxalate. So including a lot of dairy is a great idea in a diet. I believe in including animal foods in, in most every meal. I tend to do big chunks of like over five ounces of fish or pork or some kind of meat usually with butter is my main staples. And then I'll build around that with the low oxalate foods, including things like winter squash and papaya and coconut things that I make for like treats. And so what, what would you say? So you counsel a lot of people on, you know, lowering oxalates and, and what would you say is some, are some of the biggest changes that they would see? You, know, you talked about a lot of the, the potential symptoms, but um, 
what are some of the biggest changes maybe in your own life or, or other, you know, other people you've counseled that you'll see as they start to get rid of uh, these oxalates? Well, pain is number one, pain and some form of disability that made it hard to hike or walk or, you know, be active and have that active lifestyle. Getting back to an active lifestyle is amazing. But some of us are so sick that where our energy is not great and now our energy is being spent on healing. So we have to be careful about not overdoing now that we're feeling better and we're less pain. But pain relief is a big one. One of the ones that surprised the heck out of me is how many people have been telling me, whether clients or just people who DM me on social media, lots of anxiety and other kinds of mental issues clearing up. One person said to me, she's been in counseling weekly for her anxiety for 30 years. She's hardly missed a week in 30 years, and now she doesn't need it at all. And I, we continue to discover things that are really quite remarkable. And I, one of my early clients, she was having problems with addiction. She was having, you know, both food and alcohol have been lifetime problems for her. And when she went on the diet, she felt that she wasn't an addict anymore. Like it really freed up her brain to function again and for her to be a real choice maker. So the, the brain effects and the neurological effects are really quite profound because it's so personal. This is our identity we're talking about. So you can get back who you really are in some cases, get your brain happier again. I've had people email me with all kinds of things. One that was very surprising that is nowhere in the science. I didn't mention this in the book. A case of lipedema, which is a condition where you get fatty development through starts in the thighs and can become aberrant, odd fat throughout the body with time. It's considered an incurable progressive disorder. She's the mother of children. She's uh, probably around 40 years old. I'm not sure. She went to a conference for lipedema patients that included the lipedema doctors. And she, she had bought my book about three months before the conference and was seeing remarkable changes in her daughter, her daughter's pain and stuff with her young daughter and herself, including her lipedema was receding and she was losing weight for the first time in 20 years after three months of paying attention to oxalate. And she mentioned this to the doctors there. And one of the, one of the liposuction doctors who's renowned nationally said he sometimes sees grit and finds grit in these fat deposits that he takes out of people with lipedema. So this is news, but it's not that surprising because we see a cystic, some people have a cystic response to oxalate. And so people who get cysts internally and externally can be, it can be oxalate related. A lot of cysts go away, fibrinogen levels drop, fibrosis drops, scar tissue starts going away, tissues start repairing themselves in new ways. Vision gets better. Almost all of us have improved night vision. I've had three or four people report reversals of cataracts. Uh, a, a child and several others reverse reducing their correction with their glasses. One person no longer, at least one, no longer needing glasses to drive. Changes in dentition, the teeth get better. I reversed my osteopenia because now the bones can don't need to keep giving up their calcium and can heal again. All kinds of stuff. It's really remarkable. Okay. Uh any supplements you mentioned, you know, calcium uh, in dairy and stuff, but are there any other supplements that you're aware of that can help, you know, the body get rid of this excess uh, oxalates? Yeah. So the calcium is really helpful. If you tolerate the calcium citrate is usually the form we prefer with minerals because the citric acid 
helps to dissolve oxalate crystals. It helps to prevent kidney stones. It helps to keep the proper pH in the urine. Uh, this, the citric acid also is really good for bones and teeth because that's what's holding the calcium and minerals onto the underlying substrate that makes up bones and teeth. So we love the citric acid form. Potassium citrate can be really helpful for many reasons. Uh, one of which it, it helps you rebuild your bones. Um, magnesium is a big help, especially when there's constipation, but all the minerals are great. A little more salt is usually excellent. The uh, high oxalate condition causes the kidneys to waste salt. So you can be very generous with salt as you often are with keto diets, needing more salt and potassium. So you want to definitely emphasize those. The liver will make more oxalate if it's low in B6 and B1. B1, especially in the newer forms that are more absorbable by cells, uh, is very helpful in lowering inflammation in cells and supporting liver function and energy and blood sugar regulation and brain function. So some people really need the new forms of B1 or a decent, a decent, not too strong, but a decent B complex. And then there's various other ways where you might need to support the body because things like gallbladder issues can occur, especially in the healing process. A certain amount of sludge in the gallbladder is oxalate. And at some point, people have a temporary period of poor fat digestion, poor gallbladder function as that's healing as well. So supporting that temporarily can be part of the plan. Um, those are the main ones. So it's getting the minerals, making sure you're not deficient in B vitamins, and then finding the other places where you need some support to get through the healing. Okay. Very nice. Well, we're about out of time here, uh, but I would encourage people, we have just barely touched the surface on this stuff. So uh, I would encourage people to get the book, uh, Toxic Superfoods, available. I know it's on Amazon and probably uh, all over. Uh, your website is sallynorton.com. So I guess that's the best. Sallyknorton.com. I'm sorry. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's Sally another K... sallynorton.com that somebody else. So. Ah, okay. All right. So sallyknorton.com. And is that yeah. the best place for people to work with you and reach out to you. And, um, yeah, that's the best okay. thing to do. I'm also on Instagram. I have a YouTube channel. We'll be putting more things out on YouTube there. And uh, I have a Facebook channel, but I don't do any time. I don't have time for it. Don't love it. So, okay. And what's your uh, Instagram is I have SK Norton was my original one. SK Norton that one was stolen a year ago in March. And so I started a second one that's called toxic superfoods underscore oxalate underscore book. And that's um, more news about the book. So you may want to check out both of those. Okay. Okay. Well, very nice. Uh, so as we wrap up, uh, I always ask my guests if they could give us one health tip that would make us healthier today. What would you say to that? Get outside and do something your soul wants you to do. Know what you really want to be doing with your life and give yourself a little taste of that. Okay, very nice. Great advice. So uh, very good stuff. And uh, something that I try, I was thinking at the beginning of this, if I've had a show on oxalates and I don't know that I have. Um, and and we I had one uh, recently on uric acid, um, but I don't know that we've, we've talked specifically about oxalate. So anyway, uh, well, there's a real connection between them. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, yeah, good stuff. I'd encourage everyone to check out the book. So, uh, thank you so much for your time and, um, really appreciate everyone listening and we will talk to you next time. 
Thank you for listening to FitRx. I invite you to share this with friends and family. If you would like, you can check out our website at vibrantlifedc.com or you can email me at drgreg at vibrantlifedc.com.